0: morning. morning. Welcome, welcome to West Hills. So good to have you with us this morning. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new, it's such a blessing to have you. And um, we want to welcome you. Welcome, uh, hopefully, maybe some of you. uh, I'm looking around, maybe one or two, uh, that um, are are new even to our church. Uh, Maybe you discovered us at Fall Festival yesterday. I want to say a special thanks uh, to those of you who not only joined us, but who especially those who helped make yesterday and uh, our our big fall outreach event such a success, Allie um, is telling me we had 325 people there, and uh, two third she thinks over two thirds of them were visitors. So over 200 people come into our our church property for the first time, discovering the church. And as we said, you know, you just never know how those kinds of things. Uh, help plant those seeds and help make people feel welcome, welcome and invited um, back here on Sundays. And so that's what we continue to pray and, and reach out with. But thank you all for, for all of you who helped make that such a, a success. <clears throat> and I do wish you a happy All Hallows Eve. I love that uh, in St. Louis, kids have to tell a joke to get candy. You know, why skeletons don't play church music. They got no organs speaking of church how's that for a segue speaking of church we're in uh... week eight of our eleven part series this fall essentials the essentials of christianity studying through our statement of faith together as a church and our statement on the church declares that the church is the universal body of christ comprised of all regenerated persons from all generations a living spiritual body of which jesus christ is the head The local church consists of a particular body of believers who gather together for worship, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship, community, and global witness to a lost world. That's pretty good. I considered uh, trying to unpack all seven of those functions of the church this morning, worship, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship, community, and global witness, but I decided uh, seven wasn't enough. And so, as you see in your bulletins, I'm going to give you the 16 marks of a healthy church this morning. Some of you uh, are familiar with nine marks ministry, but long before Mark Dever gave us the nine marks of a healthy church, the Apostle Paul gave us 16 in his first letter to the church in Corinth. So I give you one per chapter here. We're going to walk through 1 Corinthians. It's one of the best go to places in the Bible for information on the church. What is the church? What isn't the church? It's eminently practical, but it's also deeply theological. God willing, one day we'll, we'll preach through the entire book here. But this morning, uh, we're just going to get the 45-minute flyover version. So as you turn there in your Bibles with me, let's go to the Lord together once again in prayer. Father, we come to you once again now asking you to do what only you can do <clears throat> and open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our ears to hear your word, the gospel. Open our hearts to receive it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> pens ready. Here we go. What is the church? Chapter 1. First of all, the church must be encouraged by her leaders. Paul says right off the bat, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's what the church is, by the way. That's who the church is. It's born-again believers in Jesus, the only true members of the church. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this letter isn't just for the Corinthians in the first century. It's for us today, 2,000 years later as well. All those who call upon the name of Jesus, Paul says. And to us and to them, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, as we walk through this letter this morning, you're going to start to wonder how in the world Paul could possibly be so encouraging of the church in Corinth. There are a lot of reasons similarly, similarly to be critical of the church in America today. We're the number one exporter globally of the spiritual pollutant known as the prosperity gospel Even the churches that are doctrinally sound here in the States sometimes seem like they're mostly concerned with counting cheeks in the seats or the bottom line of their spreadsheets. They are with biblical fidelity. And despite having more wealth and more technological resources than at any time in the history of the world, there are more unreached people today, more people who have never even heard the name of Jesus in the world today than at any time in the history of the world. And so the American church has got some issues but just listen to the rap sheet on the church in Corinth Paul calls them people of the flesh chapter 3 verse 1 says they're spiritual babies who refuse to grow up he says they become more devoted to their own little theological tribes than to following Jesus they're arrogant and boastful chapter 4 they tolerate sexual perversions not even allowed by the pagans chapter 5 They're suing each other and sleeping with prostitutes, chapter 6. Do you get the picture? That's just the first six chapters. And yet Paul sends them here in his opening, grace and peace in Christ. He says, I thank my God always for you. Why? Verse 4, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul can be so encouraging of this wayward church, because they're standing before God, the Father has nothing to do with their own merit or lack thereof. Rather, it has everything to do with the grace of God, the undeserved gift of God that was given to them in Christ. His righteousness. That's the gospel. Joel Osteen encourages his church by telling them, you're so great. The Apostle Paul encourages the Corinthians and wants to encourage us this morning that in spite of how not great you are, you're a miserable sinner, but you serve a marvelous Savior. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he's done for you in spite of you. And that's the gospel we strive to encourage you with Every week here as your pastors, your leaders at West Hills. Chapter 2, the church is illuminated by God's Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 7, 10 through 13, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. I can be quick on this point because Pastor Thad preached just last Sunday on the Holy Spirit. And he did a wonderful job explaining the role of the Spirit in illuminating God's Word in the hearts of God's people. I had breakfast last week with a new couple here at the church who asked me, What's your philosophy of preaching? What are you trying to accomplish every time you stand up in the pulpit? It's an excellent question, by the way. And my answer was very simply that my aim in preaching is to get the Word of God into the people of God. That's it. That's my job description as a pastor, to get this into you. God tells us that he saves us by his Word, James 1.21. He sanctifies us by his Word, John 17.17. 17. Jesus said we live our very life depends not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So my task as your pastor is to get this into you. Now, here's the thing. I can't do it. That's an impossible task. Because verse 11, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except who? The Spirit of God. Only God's Spirit can illuminate the hearts of God's people, can unstop deaf ears, can unblind spiritually blind eyes. And so the second half of my job then, maybe even more importantly, is simply to pray. That's, I pray that God's Spirit might illuminate God's Word in your heart. I preach and then I pray. That's it. That's the job description of a pastor, Acts chapter 6. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word chapter 3 the church is unified by her shared foundation chapter 3 verse 3 paul says for while there is passion and strife among you are you not of the flesh for when one says i follow paul and another i follow apollos are you not being merely human i planted apollos watered but god gave the growth verse 11 for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ if Paul was to hop in a time machine and write a letter to the American church today I wonder what he would say what what camps do we divide ourselves up into today I follow John Calvin no I follow John Wesley I'm a Baptist well I'm a Lutheran I follow Trump, I follow Biden. I follow Fauci's advice, well, I follow the science. Black lives matter, No, all lives matter. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years, has it? We've just found more issues to split over. And our enemy, Satan, loves it. He's having a field day in the 21st century American church. He loves it. He loves to divide the church. Paul reminds us, our common foundation as a church is isn't which pastor we like best. It isn't which politician we voted for. It isn't our stance on masks or vaccines or CRT or mode of baptism. No, what unifies us as a church is Jesus. No one can lay a foundation other than Jesus. The world is full of passion and strife. Just go on social media if you start to doubt that. God's church is to be filled with peace and unity. Paul wrote back in chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind. That's the question for us this morning as a church, West Hills. Whether or not our unity in Christ is strong enough to withstand our political differences, our socioeconomic differences, our racial differences, even our second and third tier theological differences. Is our unity in Christ enough? Is Christ really enough, as we sang, that he is? Chapter 4, the church must be humbled by the apostolic witness. What does that mean? In chapter 4, Paul expresses just how low... He is feeling he gets personal with them he says i'm weak i'm homeless i'm persecuted i'm treated like the scum of the world he says i feel like a man sentenced to death meanwhile the corinthians have just gone on living their best life now and not only that they've become puffed up in arrogance he says spiritual pride and so in verse 14 Paul writes that I admonish you as my beloved children. That's what a good father does to his children when they need discipline, right? Admonishes them. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father, your spiritual father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. You know what it means to imitate Paul? It means to be prepared, to be beheaded for the sake of the gospel, if you have to be. That was Paul's fate in Rome in A.D. 64. What does it mean to imitate Peter? It means to be prepared, to be crucified upside down, rather than renounce your faith in Christ. What does it mean to imitate Jesus, to follow him? He emptied himself and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross you want to be like the apostles the the spiritual giants of our faith 10 of the 12 of them were martyred do you want to be like jesus first step take up your cross take up your cross you've got to be willing to die christianity is all about downward mobility how low can you go pride puffs up true christian faith is a race to the bottom humility chapter five The church is to be distinguished by her holiness. Paul informs us in chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. And you are arrogant? This is the church that is prideful? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, Jesus died to make us new, so we don't make light of his sacrifice in the church by tolerating unrepentant sin. Christ died for so much more than that. Sin is like a spiritual cancer, just a little sin can infect the whole church. Moreover, as believers, we need to feel the weight of the fact that we bear Jesus' name. Literally, when we call ourselves Christians, Christian means little Christ. And so when we condone sin in the church, we tell the world a lie about who Jesus is. That Jesus is okay with sin. He's not. God calls us to be holy as I am holy. We had to remove someone from this church, West Hills, just this past week. First time in the six years that I've been here. I tell you, it stinks. If we weren't in church, I would use stronger language than that. That more adequately conveys how much it stinks to have to tell someone you were friends with, thought you were brothers with, thought we were brothers in Christ to tell him that he's no longer welcome here, that we are handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, praying that God might have mercy on his soul on the day of his judgment. But listen, this church, West Hills, will not tell a lie about Jesus. We will not tell the world that Jesus is just fine with abandoning your wife. We will not stand idly by while professing believers spit in Jesus's face and sin with a high hand Jesus died for so much more than that for his church his blood bought church listen you don't have to be a perfect to be a member here but you do have to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the lord hebrews 12:14 and when you do inevitably fall short You have to repent. You have to throw yourself on Christ's undeserved mercy in humility and repentance. Chapter 6. Similarly, the church is characterized by purity. We're distinguished by holiness and characterized by purity. Chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says you were unrighteous. You were disqualified from inheriting the kingdom of God entering heaven you were past tense but you were also washed cleansed past tense you were sanctified you were called to a better life a life free of sin life to the fullest and you were enabled for it equipped for it you were justified acquitted of all the guilt of your sin by Christ shed blood on the cross for you past tense it was finished 2,000 years ago. And so now Paul exhorts us in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We've inherited new life, a better life, so let's live like it. Let's glorify God in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, in every part of our being. Let's be characterized by our purity, by our pure, unadulterated devotion to the Lord. What a high calling. We will fall short. Thank God for his grace and mercy, forgiveness. But friends, it's worth striving for. Striving for the holiness and purity that Jesus died to make available to us. We should settle for nothing less. Chapter 7. The church must be impassioned by mission. Impassioned by mission. Chapter 7 is all about marriage. And here is Paul's philosophy of marriage in a nutshell. For all you who are dating, engaged, newlyweds. Paul's philosophy of marriage is this. If you can't keep it in your pants, get married. That's what he says. That would make for an interesting wedding homily. <laughs> I've never used 1 Corinthians 7 as a wedding text before, but I'm officiating you and Allison's wedding here in a few weeks, I just wonder how it would go over if I opened with, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today because you and Allison decided they couldn't keep it in their pants any longer. That's exactly what Paul says, though, right here in verse 1. He says, it's good, it's best for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Paul's going to argue in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, Paul am. Paul was single and not so ready to mingle. Why? Because verse 33, he says, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And so in verse 35, Paul enjoins us to, to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. If you can manage it, if you can do it. Undivided devotion to the Lord. When was the last time you met a Christian who was single by choice because they were too busy serving the Lord to be distracted by a spouse? That's a witness to the world. The Bible is clear. It is better to be single and devote yourself completely to the work of the Lord if you can manage it. Keep it in your pants. The spread of the gospel to all nations is worth our wholehearted devotion. People all around us are dying and they're going to hell by the thousands and the millions every day, and they need to hear the gospel. But I'm too busy, distracted, helping my wife pick out her Halloween costume. This is what Paul's talking about. May we not be too distracted, church, even if we are married. May we be ignited with a passion for seeing dead people come to life by the power of the gospel. May we proclaim it. How will they hear it if we're not sharing it? The good news about Jesus. Verse chapter 8. Chapter 8, the church must be challenged by self sacrifice. Now, Paul gets super practical, but also super theological. He writes, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In the pagan city of Corinth, it was a pretty safe bet that if you went down to your local butcher and asked for a pound of ground beef, that cow had been sacrificed to one of the fake Greek gods in their big temples downtown, like Aphrodite or Poseidon. That poses a real moral dilemma here for the Corinthian Christian. Do I eat the meat because idols aren't even real but risk having someone else think that I'm endorsing the sacrifices to these pagan gods, or do I refuse to eat the meat and thereby give credibility to that fake God? And Paul answers very simply, you need to worry less about your preferences. Well, I really enjoy eating meat, And you need to worry even less, believe it or not, about some of your principles. I'm going to stand up for my beliefs about idols then you worry about people. That's what you need to worry about. Not your preferences, not your principles, but people. How can I best care for and witness to others in my personal decision about whether or not to eat? So whether that's a fellow believer with a weaker conscience, or especially an unbeliever, Paul's going to say in chapter 9, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. If eating meat opens a door to sharing the gospel with them, then I'll eat it. If it closes a door, then I'll abstain. If dressing up like Ted Lasso opens a door for me to witness to my neighbors on Halloween, then I'll do it. If drinking beer in front of them closes a door, then I won't. I'll abstain. If getting vaccinated opens a door, I'll take the shot. If wearing a mask closes the door, I'll go maskless. We need to care less about our personal preferences and our extra-biblical principles and more about the people around us. How can I best show them the love of Jesus? Chapter 9. The church is compelled by generosity. Compelled by generosity. Paul asks, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple... And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paraphrase, pay your pastors. Would you go out for lunch today and walk away without paying for the food you just ate? Then why would you come to church and expect to be spiritually fed for free? don't shoot the messenger. I'm just preaching God's word. That's what Paul said. If you don't like it, you can go find a church where they don't call you to generosity. The pastor lives off of bird seed and nice words of encouragement. I appreciate your encouragement, but my kids got to eat. I thank God that West Hills is such a generous church. I thank God that I get to Just be your pastor, and I don't have to constantly ask for your money. Be the church fundraiser. West Hills is a generous church. You're better Christians than the Corinthians. Just don't let it go to your heads and puff you up. Chapter 10, the church is instructed by biblical biblical example. Instructed by biblical example. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but in chapter 10, Paul reminds the church that they are spiritual descendants of the Old Testament followers of God, the ancient Israelites, whom like Moses, uh, who, whom Moses led out of Egypt, but then Paul warns the Corinthians not to be like them, those Old Testament Israelites, because they so quickly forgot God's salvation when they were in the wilderness and they complained, even asked to go back to Egypt. And so Paul concludes, now these things took place as examples to us. That we might not desire evil as they did. They were written down for our instruction. That's what the Bible is. You and I get instructed every single day by dozens of different influencers, as Gen Z calls them influencers who hold up various examples of what we like we ought to be like dress like kim kardashian nike wants you to to be more like lebron james your boss wants you to be more like me your wife says be more like the fun dad next door god's word says be more like jesus he is the example you want to follow and therefore his word the bible is what you need to be instructed by. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we, the church, we desire to live Scripture-shaped lives, We want our lives to be shaped by Scripture. And so part of what that means then, chapter 11, is that the church is anchored by tradition. In the church, we're anchored by tradition. Paul writes in chapter 11, verse 2, Now I commend you because you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And then he provides two examples of church traditions that he had commended to the Corinthians, women's head coverings and the Lord's Supper. We still practice one of those every week at West Hill's let you guess which one. I actually preached a whole sermon on head coverings back in March of 2020, if you're newer and want to dig that out of the sermon archives online, but the overarching point I want to make here is that the church is an inherently conservative institution. Now, that's not a political statement, I'm not saying we all vote Republican. I'm, I'm saying that in the most literal sense of the term, the church is conservative Inclined to preserve existing conditions and traditions. Why? Because Jesus, the guy we're all trying to follow, lived 2,000 years ago. And his closest followers, the apostles, they did some pretty neat stuff, like bring people back from the dead. But the farther we've gotten from Jesus the more humans have gotten involved in the church and corrupted it because human more humans means more sin. And so Paul exhorts us we need to be anchored in tradition. The prophet Jeremiah called the Israelites to seek out the ancient paths. They thought they had come up with some pretty cool religious innovations like worshiping Baal and Asherah and building high places and new temples that God didn't come in. We'll just build extra temples. God will be extra. No, says Jeremiah. No, you seek out the ancient paths. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Chapter 12. The church is empowered by gift-fueled service. Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I don't have to spend long here either because Pastor Thad covered it last week, Holy Spirit. But I would just lovingly invite you to ask yourself this morning, if I left West Hills tomorrow would the church suffer? Paul claims that every member of the body is indispensable, verse 22. That if one member suffers, the whole body suffers. Have you ever stubbed your pinky toe? Yesterday, I had a single grain of sand stuck in my eye all day long after I played volleyball. Do you think I was enjoying how great the rest of my body felt having gotten such a good workout in the morning? No, just one stubbed toe, just one grain of sand in your eye can bring you down. What role do you play in this body as a member of of our church body? What indispensable role? Would we feel it if you left? I hope so. I pray so. May we not be an 80 20 church where 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. I like to tell people we're more like a 65 35 church. That's not quite as bad as 80 20, but we've still got room to grow. We want to be a 100 100 church. 100% of the work gets done by 100% of the people. God has given you a spiritual gift for the common good, for blessing and serving his church. 1 Peter 4:10 says, "As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." Chapter 13. We do it because of love. The church is defined by love. We may be distinguished by holiness and characterized by purity, but we are if I'll die for the faith, but have not love, I, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Speaking of wedding texts, long before anyone ever thought of reading that to a bride and a groom at the altar, Paul wrote it to the church, to encourage the church, us, to love one another Jesus went so far as to say that by this, all people will know whether or not you follow me if you have love for one another. Love is the proof of your faith in Him. Jesus' church, His followers, are defined by our love. In fact, First John 4:20 says, "It's impossible to love God if you don't love others. It's possible that if you truly love God, you will love others, His children. If you love me, you're going to love my kids. If you ignore Ellery and Elijah, or worse, you mistreat them, you and I are not going to have a good relationship. John says that's how it is with God and his children as well. I don't care if you can move mountains. If you don't love one another and others, then you got nothing. We are defined in the church by our love. Chapter 14 the church is driven by mutual edification. Paul is back on the topic of spiritual gifts in chapter 14, but whereas in chapter 12 he was addressing those who were underzealous about serving, well, I'm just the appendix. That church doesn't really need me. In chapter 14, Paul is addressing those who were overzealous about the gifts and specifically he exhorts them to make sure that they are desiring spiritual gifts not for their own sake for puffing themselves up but rather for building the church up he says in verses 12 and 26 since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit strive to excel in building up the church when you come together each one has a hymn a lesson a revelation a tongue or an interpretation Let all things be done for building up. Paul contrasts speaking in tongues with the gift of prophecy. And Paul's humanity comes out a little bit when he says in verse 18, he boasts, I speak in tongues more than all y'all. But then he says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak just five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because the church isn't a place for us to show off how godly we are. It's a place to show others how good God is by serving them in his name through his power. Bonus trait here, verses 23, 24, 25. Not only is the church driven by mutual edification of each other, but we're also driven by outreach to the unchurched as well. Paul asks, what impression does our corporate worship make on outsiders who are coming in and joining us? Paul expects that that is happening. He says, if we're all speaking in tongues, they're going to think we're drunk, like in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. So we need to let that challenge us this morning as well. How are we using our spiritual gifts not only to edify other believers, but to reach unbelievers as well? Chapter 15, the church is centered by the gospel. We're centered by the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, central, centrality, what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Gospel is everything to us in the church. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that is game, set, and match for the church. Paul says in verse 14, if Jesus didn't die and rise from the grave, then your faith is pointless. We're all wasting a whole bunch of time here. He says that you'd be better off going back to worshiping the pagan gods, because at least then you'd fit in with the surrounding Corinthian society. You're going to suffer for your faith in Christ. You're going to suffer embarrassment. You really believe that a guy 2,000 years ago forgave every bad thing you've ever thought, said, or done in your entire life by dying on a cross and then to prove it to conquer not just the penalty of sin but the power of sin as well that three days later he literally, physically rose from the grave. You believe that? We do. We do. And if the church was a solar system... The gospel would be the sun. It's the center of it all. Everything we are and we do as a church, everything else in the church revolves around it and hinges on it. And because it's true, because Christ did rise from the dead to defeat sin and death, Paul assures us later in chapter 15 that all those who trust in him will one day be raised to inherit eternal life beyond the grave with Jesus in heaven forever as well oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ that's the gospel lastly chapter 16 the church is permeated by love love is so important Paul features it twice he closes with some practical exhortations and some examples of love in action. Calls them to support other churches, verses 1 through 4. Help missionaries, verses 5 through 11. Submit to godly leaders, verses 12 through 18. Enjoy fellowship with one another as a church, verses 19 through 24. In summary, he says, Let all that you do, everything, let all that you do be done. In love. And then he says, My love, he models it for them. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's it, 16 marks of a healthy church. It's like 45 minutes. Church, this is who we are. We are encouraged, illuminated, unified, humbled, holy, pure missional, self-sacrificial, generous, scripture-shaped, conservative, servant-hearted, loving, mutually edifying, gospel-centered lovers. That's who we are. All unto the glory of God. Amen.